Hi everybody. Hope uh, everyone is doing good. Last night, uh, Blessin sent out a message um, on the on all our groups asking us uh, to to uh, to keep today's meeting in prayer, which is what every week the coordinator would do. Uh, how many of us actually prayed for today's meeting? Um, maybe some of you have. Maybe some of us haven't. I'm. I'm not saying I have prayed every week, uh, but it will be a good practice if you can keep the Sunday's meeting in your prayers because it's just incredible how Satan sometimes tries to unsettle us uh, when we have something important to do the next day. Now I have a I have a funny tummy, and it's incredible how every time I'm supposed to do something, my tummy would act up. Uh, for someone who would generally sleep well. Um, you know, I'll have issues with sleeping, so there'll be a lot of things going wrong. So it'll be good if y'all can keep whoever is speaking the next Sunday. It'll be good if you can keep the speaker and the meeting in your prayers. Okay, so with that, we come to uh, Ephesians chapter four today. So Ephesians chapter four, we are coming to a very critical uh, portion in in this in this whole book. In Ephesians chapter four, we are getting into. the uh, paul's practical instructions as we live out our life in the church in the community in our uh, workplaces and in our family so chapters 1 2 and 3 he established all the foundational things uh, all the doctrinal things and as we come to ephesians chapter 4 he's getting into the practical application of all these things that he just laid out okay so if we come to ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 it says As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, if you look at it, the opening statement here that as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. In chapter three and verse one, this is how he opens again. It says, "For this reason, I Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles." Now, we had seen that how Paul is recalling his identity as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is right now in a Roman prison. and he's not calling himself as a prisoner of the romans but what he is saying is he is a prisoner of the lord jesus christ and he's urging people to live a life that is worthy of the calling which they have received what is this life that is worthy of the calling that you have received now in my company when 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 we get onboarded we are repeatedly told every 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 year Uh, we have to go through this process of uh, just recommitting our ourselves to the company so we are told that the life that you live within the company and outside you should always remember that you are representing your company wherever you are so you shouldn't do anything which will break the law of the land you shouldn't do anything contrary to what the company values are because what you do to 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 anybody in the society reflects reflects your company as well so they ask you to be guarded in the way you approach um, things in the society um, you know when i was uh, when i was growing up um, you know i grew up and i did my schooling in kuwait and i had a friend of mine called nishant and his father was a diplomat with the indian high commission in kuwait and his dad used to have a car which had the indian flag uh, where they used to stay they had the indian flag so his dad was representing india in the state of kuwait and that is what ambassadors do 
when they represent a country, they actually represent the head of that state in the country that they are posted to. So, for example, an Indian ambassador to the U.S. represents the Indian president when he or she is posted in the country that they are sent to. So they have a responsibility to uphold the honor of the person that they are representing. Now, in, in, in this particular uh, book itself, if you come to Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 20, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, Paul is saying that, for which I am an ambassador in chains. So Paul is calling himself as one who is an ambassador who is in chains. So he's representing Christ to the church at Ephesus, or he's representing Christ to all the places that he has a ministry at. Now, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, Come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as the God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He's saying, We are ambassadors of Christ. So, church, you and I have this responsibility of being ambassadors. We are ambassadors representing Christ wherever we are placed in this world, in our society, in our workplace, wherever we are. But in this particular context, he's talking about the church. Now, out of these six verses in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, the most critical verses, please come with me to verse 3. Verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, just keep this verse in mind. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So after laying out all the doctrinal foundations in the first three chapters, he's now getting into the life in our church. And what he's saying is, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's asking us to maintain unity within the church. Now, how do we maintain this unity? How we maintain this unity is what he's going on to explain in the next couple of verses. Now let's come to verse 2. It says, Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay? There are a couple of virtues that he's speaking about there. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, if you look at it, these look like simple virtues. It says, be completely humble. Humility. Humility is a great virtue. Today's world loves humble people. But you know what? That was not always the case. In fact, in the then world, humility was a virtue which was looked down upon. People did not appreciate humility. You know, John Wesley says this. He says that neither the Romans or the Greeks even had a word for humility. The Greek word was apparently coined by the Christians, and pagan writers used it derogatorily. They saw humility as a pitiable weakness. So in the then world, they embraced a macho culture. Strength was might, and in that world, humility as a word did not even exist for the Greeks. And it is in that context that Paul is writing to this church and saying that be completely humble and gentle. It is totally countercultural to what the society then embraced. It is totally countercultural to what they practiced. Now, if you look at it, who is our greatest example of humility? Before we come to that, you know what Aristotle said? Aristotle was supposed to be one of the greatest philosophers in the world. And what Aristotle said is, the greatest Greek virtue was refusal to tolerate any insult and having a readiness to strike back. That is what he called as a virtue, the refusal 
to tolerate any insult and a readiness to strike back. That was what the then known philosophers, that is what the then known religions, that is what they all practiced. And it is in this context that a church like Ephesus came into being and people were called out to be a part of God's church. And it is to that church that Paul is writing that be completely humble and gentle. The protagonist of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the greatest example for us is to look at how the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. There is no one greater in this world than the Lord Jesus Christ who was humble and who was gentle. I think the gospel is totally countercultural when it came into this world. It, 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 it completely took the world by storm, by, by coming to this world and giving an idea which was totally contrary to what the people believed and were practicing. Now this morning, we were worshipping the Lord and we heard different thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now one of the common portions that we generally uh, read when we come for worship is from Philippians. Let's come to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse, five, uh, verse 6 it says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Just look at that. Who was he? He was God himself. And being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Because why? He thought of you and me. And therefore, he did not think he should grab on to that seat of power. But he came down into this world. And this is called the condescension of Christ. He came down into this world because he thought of you and me. And then it says, neither he made himself Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He took the very nature of a servant or he took the very nature of a human being. Just imagine that God the Most High, the God who is holy, the God who is divine, he took the nature of a servant. Why? Because to rescue you and me from the grip of sin. And then it says, and being found as a man, being found as a man, imagine this is God. He's taken flesh. And it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. The Romans did not give the cross to even their own citizens. The cross was reserved for the most despicable people according to them. The worst of sinners, traitors. And that's the cross our Lord Jesus Christ took when he came down into this world. My Jesus was humble. He exemplified humility more than anybody else in the world because here he was God. He was God. And he came down into this world. I think the song that Ashley sang, uh, uh, Ashley told us to sing, right? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He showed us what humility is all about. You know, in uh, in if you come to first Coloss uh, if you come to Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one and verse sixteen says, "For in Him, okay, it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him." And it is this God who condescended. It is this Christ who came down into this world and took on human flesh and went to the cross, to that despicable cross,
to die for you and I. You know, further in Colossians chapter 2, Colossians is a beautiful book which talks about uh, Christ. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse verse 9, it says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The fullness of deity lived in bodily form, and he went and died for us on Calvary. That's what Jesus showed. That is what humility is. God on high came down into this world to die for us. We again read today from Isaiah chapter 53. Please turn, please turn there. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53. I mean, though these are portions which, are, which, which we read constantly, it is good to just be reminded every now and then. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. I always think, you know, when you read Genesis chapter 1, and if you read the creation story, it says, He said, God commanded, and it was so. God commanded, and it was so. And God saw that everything was good. This is the constant pattern that you see in Genesis chapter 1. The same God who created the world and everything in it, with just a spoken word, chose to remain silent for you and I. Just imagine that, right? He spoke, and it came into being. But when it came to his trial, he chose to keep himself shut, because he loved you and I. And it says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not open his mouth. That's how humble he was. That's how, that's, that's how gentle he was. This is our example. This is our example. As we pursue unity in the church, we need to put on the cloak of humility. And humility was exemplified to us by the very Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, there's, there's this other verse in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, which, which, which is a very powerful verse which speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's a beautiful verse. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Church, look at how, I mean, as we come every week here, and as we are reminded through, the, through these emblems about the Lord Jesus Christ, can we wrap our head around the humility of Jesus Christ, the condescension of Jesus Christ, what he had to undergo despite being God himself, the fullness of Godhead dwelt in bodily form. And he came down into this world to die for you and I. It's possibly all these thoughts that, that, that gripped the heart of Graham Kendrick when he wrote, Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. He's our example. As we live in the life of this church, let's always remember to be humble as we live in the church of God. Let's be humble in our dealings with one another because that is one thing Satan would love to upset. You know, a pride goes before a fall is what the scripture says. There's another verse which says that uh, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. We should never be proud as we live our life in the church. The next virtue, uh, if you come to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, it says, uh, be completely humble, and it says, be gentle. Now, if you are humble, 
you ought to be gentle as well. You cannot be proud and gentle, right? It just doesn't go uh, together. So, so, so what, is, what is this whole thing of gentleness? Again, again it's a very common word. It's, it's, a, it's a virtue that we, we all love. We love gentle animals. We love gentle kids. We love gentle human beings. But what is this gentleness that Paul is talking about here? You know, one of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. It's one of the, and you know, the Beatitudes, the, 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 the teaching of Jesus Christ on the Sermon on the Mount is something which has influenced a lot of people, even non-Christians. In India, Gandhiji was influenced by it. Swami Vivekananda was influenced by it. A lot of people, even those who are not Christians, have been gripped by the power of Jesus' Beatitudes. Now, sometimes we think that the word meekness refers to the temperament of certain people. You know, there are certain people who are aggressive. There are certain people who are mild and meek. But that's not what this refers to. This is not referring to people who are generally, who generally have a disposition towards being meek. Look at a racing horse, right? If you, if you know what a horse is. Horse is an animal which has so much of energy, right? Uh, just, just visualize a stallion. And it's got so much of energy, but when the horse is reined, right, when, when they put the reins through its nose, its energy is controlled by someone. This idea, this word that is used here in the scripture for meek actually means power under control. It actually means power under control. It's not referring to people who are generally meek and mild. It's referring to people whose energy or whose aggression is kept under control for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our greatest example here again? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is our example. He is the one who is gentle and he is the one who is lowly. Just imagine, just visualize the trial of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was being taken to the trial, what did Peter do? He cut off the ear of the slave of the high priest. And what did Jesus do? His very attacker's ear, he actually healed. He actually healed. When he was hanging on the cross, what did he pray? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Imagine, Jesus is bearing all their insult. Jesus is being, his side is being pierced. His face is being spat upon. A, a crown of thorns is being put on his head and his head is being battered. And here is this man crying, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. You know, in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, very famous words of Jesus. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am humble and gentle in heart. What does that mean? You know, it's uh, those days when, when cattle was being taken to till the field. If, if, you, have a, if you have a new, um, new um, bull or an ox which is being taken into the field, they would put the yoke on a, on a senior bull the bull who has the experience of having gone through the stilling, so that the yoke is light for the new one that is coming in. It's in that context that Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. He's carrying the heavy yoke. It says, I am gentle and humble in heart. I feel for you. Come with me. Make your yoke light. I will carry that heavy burden. Look how gentle Jesus is. You know, as we, you know, as I was just going through all of this, uh, you know, I think my appreciation of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just grew up a little more. And I'm sure that is how it has to happen for each of us as we are on this road of sanctification. Jesus was humble. Jesus was gentle. 
It is totally contradictory to what the world then practice. Today, these virtues that we embrace were given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we live our life in this church, in God's church, or any church that you would be a part of, always remember, as you pursue unity, you need to put on gentleness, you need to put on humility. That's what is essential for unity in the church of God. Let's go on. It says, so we, so we looked at be completely humble, be gentle, and then it says, be patient. Be patient. Oh, patience is a virtue which, which is so difficult in today's world. Today we live in a world of instant coffee. Everything is instant, right? We don't have the time for the coffee to go through the filter and percolate and come down. You want instant coffee. You know, the Blinkit app? What is that? The last minute app. I think it's the favorite app these days, right? You don't have milk at home? Tuck. And the milk comes home in five minutes. The favorite app. Domino's 30 minutes of free. We live in an impatient world. We want everything now. We don't have the patience to wait for anything. But you know what? Patience is a very critical virtue in our Christian life. Nothing happens instantly. Look at Abraham. Abraham had to wait and wait and wait to see the fulfillment of God's promise. In fact, he became impatient. He and his wife became impatient. They took things into their own hands and then came Ishmael. And the world is still dealing with, you know, all the issues that came about, right? Noah, God asked him to build an ark. How many years did Noah have to build the ark? Do you guys know? 120 years. Today, we don't even live that long. 120 years, Noah waited to build the ark of God. You know, God's plans don't happen instantly. It just doesn't happen instantly. Look at what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when man fell. He said, I will send a seed. It took many, many centuries for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world. And in order to facilitate that, he called out Abraham. He gave Abraham a covenant. He gave David a covenant. And through the line of Judah, Jesus had to come. So, you know, it didn't happen instantly. And now... Jesus came into this world. He went, you know, he's formed the church. We are put into the church. And there's going to be a day when everything is going to, going to, going to roll back into perfection. He is patient. He is working on things. And what we need to embrace is we need to embrace patience in our life. Now, in the life of this church, maybe cell group leaders, elders, deacons, all of us, we can get um, impatient with people. We can get impatient with situations. But you know what? Patience is so critical as we deal with one another. Because God is being patient with us. He is being patient with us and He is dealing with us every step of the way. What excuse do we have in not being patient with people? You know, William Carey, um, he's one of my heroes of the faith. In, in, you know, in, 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 in today's, uh, I mean, in the last hundred years, William Carey spent 41 years in India for a man from UK. He came into this country. He came and spent 41 years in India. He learned numerous languages. He gave grammar. He formed the languages. He developed the languages. He established universities. He translated books. He translated Bible. He didn't see much fruit in, its, in his lifetime, but he was laying the foundation for later people to come and, and, and build on what he did. He was patient. God's work doesn't happen in an instance. Remember the Sunday school song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a minute to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. 
how loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. God is still working on me. We need to be patient as we live our life in the church, as we deal with people. Let's not, let's not have uh, you know, short fuses. Let's be patient with people. And let's be patient in everything that God is working in us and through us. Okay? And, uh, and then we move on. What is the next virtue? After be patient, it says, bearing with one another in love. Or it says forbearing. Again, it's, it's, it's very, 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 very tightly linked with patience. You know, the, uh, the Ephesian church, what brought about that, that bond of brotherhood? What brought about that fraternal bond? It is their common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what brought about that bond. Okay? And as, as we deal with people again in the church, we need to ensure that we bear with one another. See, each of us are different. This is, you know, we are not put through an assembly line. We are not cars which are manufactured on an assembly line where everything looks the same. No, we are not. Human people, human, human beings are complex people. You and I are different. Uh, husband and wives, we are different. Even if you have twins, I'm sure they are different. They'll have their likes and dislikes. But as we deal with one another... We ought to be patient and we have to be forbearing. And, and, and the critical word here is we bear with one another in love. In love. Not out of frustration. Not, not out of annoyance. Oh man, can't, you know, can't deal with this guy. No, we have to bear with one another in love because our goal is to ensure that everybody in this church takes after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to put on love and we have to bear with one another in love. Sometimes it can be so frustrating, right? You, you try to deal with people. You, you're like, why can't they understand? But you know what? God is patient with us and we have to bear with one another in, in, in love. What that verse actually speaks about is, you know, Jesus is saying that and they'll know that you're Christians. Oh, I think it's in John. And they'll know you're Christians by, my, by your love, Right? When we love one another and when we show unity with one another in the church, that actually displays the glory of God to the world outside, right? So we have to show love to one another. And that's how the world is going to know that they are Christians. It's a good question to ask ourselves. Today, when the world sees us as a community, do they see love or do they see discord? Do they see strife or do they see unity? You know, it's a good question to ask ourselves. You know, I myself have been in, I think, three of my earlier churches that I was part of. I have seen conflicts in those churches. I've seen things as a, you know, as, as, even as a school-going boy, I have seen things which I shouldn't have seen. And I know a lot of people who grew up with me were totally discouraged with what they saw in the life of the church. Sometimes it just beats us how people who who are proclaimers of God's word, how people who, are, who call themselves Christians, they just can't stand one another. Churches, churches get split. You hear words which shouldn't be spoken even in private conversations, but you hear those words being expressed in church. And that has impacted a lot of people in the younger generation. But as we live our life in the church, we should just ensure that we bear with one another in love, knowing that those people are as weak as us itself, right? We need, to, we need to be patient and we need to be bearing with one another in love. 
Okay. Now let's come to the next verse, which is, and, and then it comes to our, our key verse, which is, make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. It says, make every effort to make to uh, yeah, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, why is Paul writing this? Make every effort because he knows that left to ourselves, unity is not going to happen. Right? Left to our human flesh, we we are we are we are in a way in our flesh. We are programmed to be people of discord, which is why it says make every effort. So when Paul or when the scripture makes an appeal, what it means is, if you don't, if you're not careful, left to ourselves. The contrary is what is going to happen. So, for example, you know, you take the interstate highway and you will find signages on certain places which says that it's an accident-prone zone. Why do they say that? Because in that particular zone, a lot of accidents would have happened, which is why it is warning you. It's different in Bangalore because every meter is accident-prone. Yeah? So, so, on the highway, you will find these boards. So, here it says, make every effort to keep the unity of peace. Because if you don't make every effort, there's bound to be discord in the church. Now, I really praise God for CBF because in the so many years that a lot of us have been part of this church, we've not seen discord arising in this church. And that's because a majority of the people in this church have put on patience and humility and they've shown the spiritual maturity that is needed regarding themselves lesser than the people that they're dealing with. And that has fostered a bond of unity in this church. And I really hope, and I really hope that all of us pray that we maintain the spirit of unity in this church because that is going to reflect the glory of God to the world outside. That is going to impact all of us. It is going to be a great example to our very next generation itself. You know, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, it says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody, right? As far as it depends, as far as it is possible, live at peace with one another. That's what we are called to do. We are not called to win an argument. We are called to win people for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in our pursuit of winning an argument, we end up losing people. And that's not what we are called to do. You know, John chapter 13 and verse 35, it says, yeah, this is the verse which, uh, which earlier I was trying to get. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? By this, people will know that we are God's people. Now, you know, in, in John chapter 17, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus has this high priestly prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. If you can just turn in your Bibles to that. Come to John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17 and verse, verse 11, Jesus is praying this for his disciples. It says, he's, he's praying to his father and he's saying, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Who? The disciples or all of us. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. As he talks, and he's saying that as you and me, as the Father and me are one, he says that they may be one. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples that they be one. And you know, all what we have been learning in the previous weeks from the book of Ephesians, what does it tell us? Jews and Gentiles, we've been made one into the body of Christ. If you look at the cross, you know, we have, we have a vertical relationship with the Father, which is you know, he's reconciled us vertically and he's reconciled us horizontally with one another, with different people groups, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, all of us have been made one in Christ. Now, we've been positionally made one in Christ 
And what the scripture is telling us is this positional unity that we have, we are asked to live out that life in the life of the church and show that unity, display that unity in practical terms. Because the greater work has already been accomplished. His sacrifices accomplish unity. What he's asking us to do is live out that life practically as we deal with one another. So the greater job is already done. The condescension of Christ. He came down into this world. He gave his life for you and me. Now what he's asking us to do is to maintain that unity in the life of the church. Is that a difficult task? I'm not saying it's an easy task. But it is possible if you adhere to what the scripture lays out by being humble, by being gentle, by being patient, by, being, by forbearing with one another in love. And we have to put every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace let's move on um, let's come to verse 4 it says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called it says one Lord one faith one baptism one God and father of all who is over all and who is over all and through all and in all you know, every word is so put in there. It says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Look at what all we have in common, right? We, we, we spoke about how God has accomplished so much for us, how we've been united in Christ. And look at what we as a church have in common. Now, you know, when, uh, when a football team, uh, sorry, this is cricket, uh, cricket season. Okay, I don't follow cricket, so no offense to the uh, cricket uh, lovers here. But, but when a team plays, they play for, for, the, for the jersey. Right? They play for that logo. They, in their dressing room, they, they, they would have the logo of their team. Right? That's what drives them. They play for their passion. They play for their supporters. And, and, and you know, they have that, um, that zeal and that enthusiasm as they go out to play and win the cup. All what we have, you know, as diverse as we are, with all the differences that you and I have, all those differences pale in comparison to everything that we have as common, right? The things that unite us are much greater than the things that divide us. For example, there is one body. We are all part of the body of Christ. It says he is the head and we are his body, right? Each of us are members of his body. There's one body and one spirit. We already learned earlier that, that the spirit was given to us as a deposit or as a guarantee. And the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work within all of us, not at some of us, but with all of us who have come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are part of his body. We have the same spirit that is at work within us. We have one hope. We have one hope. You know, the eternal hope. Our hope is the living hope. It's not some wishful thinking, but we have the great hope that one day when the trumpet calls, we are all going to, uh, we are all going to join him in midair and and be taken away from this world. That's the hope to which we've been called. So all of us have that common hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, guys, we have one Lord. He is our Lord. 
Your Lord is my Lord as well. We, we have him. He's the one who died and gave his life for us. His blood was shed on the cross for your sins and my sins. He's our you know, common denominator. He's the one who, who gives us meaning and purpose in this life. One Lord and one faith. You know, in, I think yeah, it's in Hebrews, right? It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of, sins not, uh, the conviction of things not seen. Who gave us that faith? Faith was also given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Even that was given to us. For by grace we've been saved through faith and not of yourself, a gift of God, so that we don't boast. Right? Even that faith which we were able to put in him was given to us. He's given us the faith itself. And then it says one baptism. You know, when, 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 when people get baptized, when they go down into the water and when they come up, what does that show? It's a visible representation of what happened to them internally. They're dead. They're, their old self is dead. And they're coming up out of the water. You know, and that is symbolizing the new life that they have in Jesus Christ. And through that one baptism, we've all shown to the outside world that we are united in Christ. That we are part of his church. We are part of his body. And then it says, one God and father of all. He's our God. The divine, the supreme being, the transcendent one. Many people are trying and working to know God, but here is the God who came down into this world to die for your sins and my sins. So look at all these amazing things that we enjoy with one another in common. One Lord, sorry, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Isn't it just incredible? We are a fraternity. We are the body of Christ and we have all these amazing things in common with one another. So, so what do we, so, so what do we, what did we learn today, church? Um, Georgie, can you pull up the slides? Yeah. Yeah. What did we, what did we learn, learn together today? If I'm to just go ahead. Okay. Okay. You guys can go through this when, uh, when, uh, you know, when you, when you get these slides. But what it reminds us is, you know, we have to walk worthy of the calling to maintain unity in the life of the church. And he's given us certain virtues. The first virtue that we went through is the first virtue that you need in, 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 you know, in a walk is humility. We need to put on humility, and Christ is the greatest example. The second virtue that we need is gentleness, and that is what we need as we continue in this walk. Again, here the greatest example is the Lord Jesus Christ. The third virtue we already spoke about, it is patience. We need to be patient with one another. Impatience will be our undoing. We should be patient as we deal with one another. And the next virtue is forbearing. We have to bear with one another in, in, uh, in love. Now, I just want to ask you guys a question. And this is what we also, said, uh, also spoke about, right? The things in common that we have is greater than all our differences. We have so much more in common with each other than all the petty differences that can actually divide us, okay? Now, the other question for us to notice, are we supposed to pursue unity at any cost in the life of the church? Are there exceptions? Okay, that's a good question. Can we pursue unity at any cost in the life of this church? No, actually no, right? There are a few exceptions. If there is sin involved, we deal with that sin. For the sake of unity, we cannot close our eyes towards sin. You know, in this, in this very church, 
uh, certain sin issues had to be dealt with in the past. And church discipline actually kicked in for some people. Most of those people decided to leave this church. Most of those people decided to leave this church. Could we have condoned that and could we have lived with that sin without adhering to what the scripture calls us to do? No, we couldn't have done it. So we had to, the, the elders then had to take certain decisions which protected God's body and because of which some people had to leave the church as well. But, but we think that was, I mean, we fully believe that was the right thing to do. So if we see sin in the life of the church, we have to deal with it. But then there is a process which Jesus has laid out. And I would like all of us to come to that, right? Come to Matthew chapter 18. Okay? Come to Matthew chapter 18. And this is, this is how Jesus has laid out a process to deal with sin. And it's good for us to keep this in mind as well. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. What does it say? It says, if your brother or sister sins, what do we do? Don't tell everybody, right? We're not asked to gossip and tell everybody. If you, if you know of somebody who has sinned, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Okay, so if any of you, say you are offended with somebody, if you think that what somebody did is sinful or what somebody did is wrong, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to just between the two of you, right? Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over, right? Job done. If they listen to you, um, you know, you will notice that when you do this, most people would accept it, right? They would realize that, okay, they have gone wrong. And, and, and if they apologize, then praise be to God, the issue is settled. But if they will not listen, it says take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay? So if they don't accept their mistake, take people along, try to convince them, and then you know you have witnesses for that particular conversation. Hopefully that should work. Now, if that also doesn't work, then we get into something more difficult. It says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, right? That's where excommunication actually kicks in. We hope that we don't have to get into this, um, you know, in the life of our church. But then Jesus has laid out a process as we deal with sin and as we deal with church discipline, right? Because this is the body of God which needs to be protected. So, so we figured out, right? So if there is sin involved, then in the name of unity, we do not condone sin. We have to deal with sin, but we have to deal with it going, going by the process that Jesus has laid out. Now say, for example, there are doctrinal differences. When each of you signed up to be a member of this church, you went through the statement of faith and you went through the church distinctives. Now you could have a different perspective on, so on the essentials, we cannot compromise, but on some of the uh, practices of the church, if you don't agree with it, you have a right to have your opinion for sure. We are not saying that we are, we are uh, that, that they cannot, that we cannot tolerate another opinion, but you know what? We can discuss it. We can discuss it. All these differences we can discuss and get along with it. In the early church, when there was this whole issue of circumcision creeping into the church, what did the church do? They had the Jerusalem council. Church leaders came together. They discussed and debated and came with a resolution. You know, in the, in the, in the early church, there were seven other councils, I think, which happened. 
and all those counseled, discussed, and debated different aspects with regard to the doctrine of the church. So church leaders came together, they discussed, they debated, and came to an opinion. Okay, this is what we will do. So church, there's nothing in this church that we cannot discuss and debate, right? We can always discuss and debate, and we can all come to the right conclusion. But can everything be accommodated? It might be practically difficult. But you know what? We can always say that let's agree to disagree and let's move on. Let's hold on to the essentials because that is what is important for us. Okay. So sin, in the name of sin, we cannot, you know, we cannot go for unity at the cost of tolerating sin. Doctrinal differences, we will hold on to the essentials, but in certain practices, we can always agree to disagree. So we spoke about the process to reconcile. And one second, I'll just come. Yeah, I'll just come to that. So, as we conclude, church, I just want you to really, really think about you know these virtues which Paul has laid out here. Right? Our end goal is unity, and as we pursue that unity, there are some of these virtues which he is asking us to put on. Okay? So, you know, this uh, this is a beautiful quote. Now, this quote has been attributed to various uh, people. Some people say it is St. Augustine. Some people say it is someone else. But but we really don't know who actually said this, but it's a beautiful quote. You know, during COVID, I have this uh, uh, interesting story to t- t- tell you guys. You know, our church, we decided to, uh, we asked people to break bread in their homes. And uh, that, that was, again, not something which, um, you know, which many people agreed with. So I was having this conversation with my <clears throat> with my parents, and my parents also held a different view to this. And I remember we had some of these conversations, and uh, you know we had some messages going up and down. And uh, my dad, my dad, you know during his younger days, he was someone who used to read uh, quite a lot. And I remember this message that my dad sent. He said, "Okay, the you know this is what my understanding is." And then he quoted this quote and said, you know, this, uh, so my dad um, thought that this was a quote by St. Augustine. He said, I would just leave the quote of St. Augustine with you. And it says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And I think this is a beautiful way of handling differences in the church. So what charity means is, in Latin, the word charity actually means love. So you can read it as in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love, right? We still love one another, despite all the differences that we have. And I think this is a good principle as we deal with things uh, in the life of the church. Now, this is, this is something which I thought, uh, you know, can allow us to just all what we heard here today morning, if you had to put it in pictures, this is how possibly uh, we can look at it. So the end goal is to maintain unity of the spirit, right? So that is our end goal. And we are all on this journey, And the virtues that we require as we pursue that journey is humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing, right? Those those are the things that that are required for us as 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 we walk on this journey. Now, the shared privileges that we have as a church is we are members of one body, we have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. These are the things that we share in common. Those are the virtues that we need to put on, and we pursue unity of the spirit in the life of the church. So hope um, this challenges you, hope this inspires you, and, um, and always remember that the unity in the church is something for which Christ gave his life for. That's how precious it is. Let's maintain the unity. 
Let's foster unity. And when we do that, we reflect God's glory in the community that we are placed in. These are some questions. Um, we can actually go through these questions um, as we think through this sermon um, in our personal lives and in our cell groups as well. So God bless all of us and hope you all have a blessed uh, week ahead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for bringing us together uh, and we thank you for giving us these words from your scriptures, Lord. Father God, we know that um, the faith that we have is one that you have given us, Lord. Father, we thank you that this church that you have placed us in is a church for which your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, gave us life for. Father, we know that in a human flesh, we sometimes tend to, be, tend to have disagreements, we tend to have issues, we tend to have things which bring about disunity in the church. Father, we want to thank you for your protection, which we have experienced so far. We pray that you would continue to protect us, Lord. We pray that as we live out our lives in this church, we pray that we would always maintain unity, Lord, because we know that that's what you want us to maintain. We know that in your high priestly prayer, you prayed to your Father that you would keep us as one. Lord, we know that when you were in this world, you said that, and they'll know you're my disciples through your love. So we pray that we will genuinely love one another, Lord. We will be patient, we'll be humble, we'll be gentle, we'll be forbearing with one another in love. And we pray that you would use us mightily in the days to come as we minister to people, as we try to be the salt and light in this city, in the community, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, and wherever you have placed us, Lord. Father, we pray, Lord, would you be, would you be kind enough, Lord, to give us that grace to maintain the unity in this church. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray.